Thank you. Thank you. I am so honored. In fact, it's my honor to find AAPS. And I've told uh, Dr. Orient and really everyone in your circles that AAPS far and away is the best medical organization I've ever been involved with. And I tell you, I have a lot of credentials behind my name, and I'm probably going to sequentially drop them or have them drop from me, and I'm going to shed a little academic uh, uh, baggage uh, as, uh, as I move forward. Uh, but as introduced, I'm an internist and cardiologist, but I see patients every week. Uh, I have been dedicated to focusing on the interface between heart and kidney disease. That's what I was involved with. I'm a trained epidemiologist. I, you know, I went to University of Michigan and got my degree in epidemiology later uh, in life and, and was really blessed to train at some of the best places in the United States as a trainee in two separate institutions. The Nobel Prize was awarded uh, when I was there as a young person to see that happen. Um, but I stepped forward in COVID-19 because as uh, introduced and as so many have recognized, something was going very wrong very early in 2019. I wasn't going to stand for it. So let's jump into this. I've got um, about 70 slides, but a lot of pictures just as talking points, and my slides are your slides. So you want them, uh, email Jeremy. I worked on them up until today. Have them. Use them. And let's win the war against therapeutic nihilism. And let's talk about this rush uh, to replace trusted treatments with untrusted novel therapies. I have chaired data safety monitoring boards now for over two dozen different therapeutic products. I've been involved, I think, in about 18 products coming to market. I know data, and I know safety. And the FDA knows I know safety. In fact, I've chaired data safety monitoring boards for the National Institutes of Health and Big Pharma. And I have made some critical calls as a chairman of Day Safety Monitoring Board to shut down a program when it wasn't safe. And I can tell you that threshold is a few cases where we can't explain it. A few cases, okay? We get to five unexplained cases, we start to get very, very uncomfortable Day Safety Monitoring Board. We get to 50 unexplained death in a, a release of a product. It's gone. It's gone. We shut it down and we figure out what went wrong for new biologic pr products demand safety, safety, safety. It's unassailable. It's unassailable. If you get up in front of a group of your peers and say, I am concerned about safety, it's an unassailable position. It's a moral and ethical position of a higher level than those who are going to plod forward. It was taken in the 1976 uh, swine flu pandemic. 25 deaths, 550 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. The comfort level was gone. We had vaccinated 25% of our 220 million people in the United States, and that was it. The concern for safety was too great. The deaths escalated after stopping the program up to 53. This was the standard and still should be the standard today. Still should be the standard today. I'm going to tell you we are far beyond that. I'll follow this outline and make a few comments with respect to each one of these. New biological products, operation warp speed. COVID-19 was used as an opportunity to showcase the world's brilliance with respect to biotechnology. And there was great enthusiasm early in 2020 that this was it. This was going to be the showcase of what we could do for biotech. But I personally became concerned easily by the summer. And I had a window to America through the Hill, one of the uh, Republican journals. And um, I had uh, uh, had a large footprint in academic medicine in terms of opinion. I had published in New England Journal of Medicine, had over 650 papers in the peer-reviewed literature, but I didn't have any window of talking to America. I had testified before Congress back in 2007, but fortunately, through a series of connections, I got a, a position with The Hill, and I was a regular contributor last year, all the way until the release of the vaccines. But through this um, opportunity, I correctly predicted all the twists and turns of the pandemic because as an epidemiologist, I was trying to study through the hubris of the reporting in the media of what was going on and how this virus was moving. Uh, and it was uh, occurring in, in, in clusters. We had a big problem with respect to test positive and deaths and not reporting the hospitalizations. But we had a great gamble with the vaccine development because of the idea that so many shortcuts were being taken and there was a levering of 
of, of all of our bets on technology that was brand new technology, and Dr. Malone told you about this, but in short, the adenoviral vector DNA vaccines, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, use a replication incompetent virion to inject uh, DNA into the cells, and that DNA transcribes messenger RNA, or the Pfizer-Moderna is messenger RNA into the cell, again, uh, directly involved in protein synthesis. So it, in, it basically interacts with uh, ribosomes, and then we have transfer RNA that assembles amino acids into proteins. But what's the protein that's being assembled? In red here, the protein is the spike protein. 1,200 amino acids loaded as as is correctly pointed out by so many presenters, it is a deadly protein. By itself, it is a deadly protein. It's a deadly protein. It's the first time in human medicine where we are injecting vaccines and we're asking the human body to make a potentially lethal protein. The hope is we'd make a small enough amount of it and it would create just enough of a, an immune test that we'd form immunity to this deadly protein. The gamble was, what if we make too much? What if we make it for too long a period of time? What if these lipid nanoparticles go to the wrong organs and don't stay in the arm and we start to produce this uh, lethal protein, this damaging protein that's expressed on cell surfaces? It's not supposed to be there. The body immediately recognizes it, attacks it as being foreign. It breaks free in the circulation, circulates for two weeks, as shown by Ogata and colleagues from Harvard, and then damages blood vessels, probably the pericytes, maybe the endothelial cells, clearly is related to thrombosis. It's related to what's called hemagglutination because it attaches to salic acid residues on red blood cells and creates an unusual form of clotting, particularly in the lungs, causing desaturation like we've never seen in any other viral infection. This is what we're doing to the human body with these vaccines. It is unprecedented that this is being done it's also unprecedented that millions of Americans, more than half of us, have volunteered to take the injection without asking too much about how it works. People in my family did. They did it patriotically. They were asked unquestionably to take the vaccine, and it didn't matter which one. It didn't matter which one. And so here we are today with over half of Americans, a smaller fraction of the world's populations, have taken one of these vaccines. There's other ones. There's the Sinovac vaccine, which is a, uh, a killed virus vaccine, far less effective, also has problems. There's 27 of these in development. But this idea was that the vaccine was the only way that we were going to get out of this pandemic it alarmed all of us. By May, this paper, 57 authors, 17 countries, Bruno and colleagues, I'm in the author block, basically said, listen, if we don't have safety mechanisms in place for the vaccine programs, shut them down. Shut them down because it's safety, safety, safety. Our concerns was this was a dangerous mechanism of action. We had skipped all the critical testing to understand what this is going to do long-term to the human body. We had a concerning biodistribution study from Japan showing hyperconcentration of the lipid nanoparticles in the ovaries. Moderna separately had shown a reduced fertility study to the EMA that was concerning not to the threshold to kill the program. There's been no external uh, advisory uh, committees, no human ethics committees, day safety monitoring board. The FDA and the CDC are the sponsors of the program. They cannot be the adjudicators of death. They cannot. That violates every regulatory law that we know. And the CDC and FDA and the NIH work for us. They are public servants to us. They do not issue rulings to us. They don't have authorities to issue rulings to us. They should serve us. The doctor and the patient sit in the fiduciary relationship above those three entities. And we have the authority to make that claim. Very important. Authority is a very important word. They excluded, um, uh, they should have excluded patients who were excluded from the clinical trials. Exclusions were agreed upon by the FDA and all the IRBs because they knew the vaccines weren't going to work or would cause excessive harm in pregnant women, women at childbearing potential, COVID recovered, those with suspected COVID and positive serologies. Under no circumstances should a, a human being have ever taken one of these vaccines because they weren't allowed in clinical trials. Full stop. Full stop. Very, very important. There was no effort to restrict these people from the vaccine program. In fact, they were encouraged to take the vaccines with no safety data and, very importantly, no efforts to risk mitigate we can't reduce the risk until our agency tell us who's being harmed from the vaccines. We have had an overdue report card from our federal agencies.
My perspective on this as a doctor and a citizen is monthly reports. Monthly reports. I want these uh, staffers up on the stage. Monthly, show us the data. Show us the data. Monthly reports. Month after month, nothing. Nothing. Just these uh, uh, um, billboards, needle in every arm. Just take the shot. Just take the shot. Vaccine hesitancy. I don't care about that. I want safety. Safety. Demand it. Listen, there's safety inspections on the roof over your head right now. There's safety inspections of, of the airplane you're going to fly on later on today. What? No safety inspections of a novel biologic uh, uh, therapy that's injected to each one of us? No safety reports? Well, as of January 22nd, we had a problem. We had a big problem. We had 182 deaths. The expected number of deaths, all vaccines combined, 158 per year, 278 million shots per year in the United States. 182. We were over the line. And if we had a data safety monitoring board, this program would have been shut down in February for excess mortality, and it would have been reviewed. We only had 27 million people vaccinated in the United States. Only 27 million. What happened? Nothing. No safety review. That's malfeasance. Malfeasance is wrongdoing by those in position of authority, and that's what happened. It's really, really uncomfortable to say that our CDC, our FDA, our, our, um, our National Institutes of Health, White House Task Force 1, White House Task Force 2, President 1, President 2, Senate 1, Senate 2, Senate, uh, uh, House 1, House 2. They are all implicated in this. None of them, none of them demanded and effectuated a safety report and a stop in February. They are all culpable. What happened? Well, we now know that this early safety warning in this peer-reviewed publication from Jessica Rose clearly failed. Look how high those mortality numbers were by April. It clearly failed. We had Americans dying at, after vaccination. It was obvious. This is an obvious data signal. This is obvious. All experts agree it's obvious. Now, as of September uh, 24th, it's raced up to 15,937 Americans have died. Over 250,000 Americans after the vaccine have been hospitalized, gone to their urgent care or office visits. You can see the temporal relationship on the bottom bar graph. You can see that sharp spike upwards. Sadly, we have over 20,000 Americans that the CDC tells us are permanently disabled after the vaccine. That's bigger than some major cancer groups. That's bigger than some major cancer groups. The disability that we are going to see due to these vaccines will go down in history as an unbelievable atrocity. I made a presentation uh, to the um, uh, to the Heritage Foundation in Washington that provides a lot of oversight uh, to the House and the Senate as well as the agencies. And I made this presentation. You could hear a pin drop when I was done. Pin drop. And finally, one of the former presidents of the American Medical Association said, Dr. McCullough, we have the biggest biological catastrophe on our hands in human history with a medicinal product, and we've had two administrations buy into it. We've had two, all the houses of legislation buy into it. We have the entire medical established buy into it, and the whole media, and no one knows how to stop it. No one knows how to stop this freight train, and we're all witnessing it right now. The deaths, 50% of them occur within 48 hours of the shot. 80% occur within a week. That's been shown in separate analyses by Rose and McLachlan. McLachlan showed by getting the data, doing a representative sample, adjudicating the deaths by separate reviewers, he found that 86% of the deaths had no other explanation outside of the vaccine. Very tight temporal relationship, very tight clinical review relationship. On two occasions, the CDC on its website in March and June floated out a one-sentence um, result saying that CDC and FDA reviewers had reviewed the deaths and none were related to the vaccine. Malfeasance. I can tell you, I do this work. It takes months to get all the hospital records, to get the labs, or to get the death certificates. There's no way they could have reviewed these deaths. And including the CPR that was done in the vaccine center right right there, that wasn't related. When, when they make statements like that, they're the sponsors of the program. They actually have no position. They have no justification for them to even give us a report on what they think. They're the sponsors. 
They need experts, external experts, to review these and to give these reports. Those statements will go down in history as malfeasance. What McLachlan showed us is sadly who's dying are the seniors. The seniors are the ones we want to protect, but yet the vaccines are lethal in some seniors. Not all. Obviously, we've had half of America take the vaccine. Not everyone has died immediately, but it doesn't matter. It's too many that have died in this fraction, and we must figure out why in some individuals the vaccines are lethal. And this analysis by Kostoff, uh, it, it, the relationship between deaths with the natural infection on the left and deaths with the vaccine on the right, even though the y-axis is different, it's the same. It's an age-related death relationship. Kostoff calculated in this paper that because not everybody gets the respiratory infection and because the respiratory infection is treatable and manageable, in fact, one is more likely to die after the vaccine than just take their choice with foregoing the vaccine and potentially getting COVID-19. Statistically, in every age group, that's the case. The gamble is to gamble away from the vaccine and away from potential harm. Now, Jessica Rose, in her first paper, showed that the non-fatal um, reactions tend to be um, cardiac, cardi uh, cardiovascular, neurologic, and immunologic. They tend to occur quickly after the shot. Again, a tight temporal relationship. And with Rose, she's a, a really a tight, tight uh, epidemiologist, but virologist. She's made the case that we've completely fulfilled the Bradford Hill criteria for causality. We have a dangerous mechanism of action. We have a tight temporal relationship. We have internal consistency between death and the non-fatal um, events. We have external consistency because this is seen in the MHRA system, the yellow card system, and in the UDRA, UA, the EMA system. We've basically got it. We have fulfilled Hill's tenets of causality. The vaccine is causing these events. Um, uh, uh, there are new categories of diseases. This is vaccine-induced immune thrombocytic penic purpurea. Look at the criteria. These are individuals who sadly, after about two weeks, more likely with the adenoviral vaccines, develop a hemolytic anemia. They develop thrombosis at the same time, thrombosis in a whole variety of organs, including um, abdominal, visceral, uh, uh, venous outflow. Uh, you know, we have, this is in the peer-reviewed literature now. So, you know, we don't have to speculate on this. This is real. This is this paper's from uh, 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 Hypertension, which is one of the best papers, one of the best uh, daughter journals of circulation. Research letter, stage three hypertension in patients developing the messenger RNA SARS-CoV-2 vaccination. A marked uh, uh, skyrocketing of blood pressure in some individuals, which is catastrophic. We've had somebody in our circles in Dallas, a young man who's 42 has had an aortic dissection. Laura Ingram has had a woman in her 70s who suffered this with an intracranial hemorrhage, and she came on and told her story. Many of you have hypertension. That's who, when you have baseline hypertension, you take a spin with this vaccine, this is what you're risking. We don't know who's going to have life-threatening, potentially fatal hypertensive events with the vaccine. We know myocarditis is another risk. The FDA agrees. The FDA and the CDC reviewed cases in June. They had 200 cases of younger individuals, and they showed that 90% were hospitalized. It looks serious. We now have raced up to 5,000 cases of myocarditis in the United States. We heard yesterday that Gavin Newsom has just mandated mandatory vaccinations for all children in California with absolutely no concern regarding this effect, which will occur in many, many children as they're forced into the vaccine. What do we know? This paper from California, Tracy Hogus just published this, that looking at multiple safety sources, and this is a very high quality paper, that the myocarditis is certainly very real. It's due to the vaccine. The chances of myocarditis and hospitalization with myocarditis for one of these children who's going to be forced into vaccination, the chances of hospitalization for a cardiac problem is greater than being hospitalized for COVID-19. So it's much better for the children to not get vaccinated and take the risk of the respiratory infection. This analysis supports this. What did she find out? 86% of these thousands of hospitals, thousands of cases of myocarditis, which opponent EKG changes, a reduced left ventricular function, chest pain, early development of heart failure require hospitalization. We know now that boys with underlying, uh, con uh, with boys with um, no underlying health conditions, the chances of one of these cardiac hospitalizations is greater than taking the risk with the 
uh, natural infection alone. Look at this tight temporal relationship with SHOT2 that occurs in the upper panel. The myocarditis is explosive, and it's far more in boys than girls. And what Hogue has analyzed from the vSafe and other data systems is that the rates of myocarditis are much higher than what the CDC even forecasted. So this has to be abundantly clear. The FDA says, warning, this causes myocarditis. Don't do it. The FDA has told us this. The CDC agrees with all the data. That doesn't equal mandatory vaccination for children. It mandates just the opposite, an unbelievable, relentless, and unbreakable resistance to having the children vaccinated. It is simply not safe under any conditions, period, full stop. Without protection from pharmaceutical laws, the vaccines will, will do more harm. There's no doubt about it. We are in a free fall of a lawless state. A lawless state is developing the Office of Human Research Protections and the US FDA right now and enforcing research protections for subjects. Everybody who takes a, who takes a vaccine in the United States is in research. The fact that, that there's absolutely no protections for research subjects and we have no enforcement of pharmaceutical laws is putting us into complete freefall. The vaccines are not safe for human use on either side of the Atlantic. And the evidence-based consulting group in the UK agrees. Dr. Tess Lowry, who leads that group, that's the principal contract consulting group for the World Health Organization, has concluded an immediate halt to the vaccine program is required whilst a full and independent safety analysis is undertaken to figure out what has gone wrong with these vaccines. I'm telling you, it's clear across the world that this first generation of vaccines is not safe. I'm personally not against vaccines. I just had one last week for the flu. I've had every single vaccine I'm supposed to. I've gone to India. I've gotten extra vaccines. I'm not against vaccines, but these vaccines, multiple experts agree. It's not just me. It's not just you. Multiple experts agree. They're not safe. They are not safe enough in everyone for us to do this. There are citizen petitions uh, from uh, physician groups led by Linda Westila and Peter Doshi um, at the British Medical Journal, as well as a nursing group to the FDA to not approve these. And when it came to FDA approval on August 23rd, the FDA did not approve Pfizer. They gave a continuation of the EUA, and then they conditionally approved Comirnaty with BioNTech, which doesn't exist in the United States, legally distinct, potentially medicinally distinct, with a lots of po lot of post-marketing uh, requirements, including myocarditis, lots of um, uh, disclaimers about no information or safety information in pregnancy. That's Comirnaty. It's not even here. We do not have an approved vaccine in the United States. Yet a false talking point came out of that meeting all the way up to the President of the United States, who announced that Pfizer was approved when it wasn't. Historians will record these events. I mean, this is extraordinary. The person who signed the letter, Dr. Gruber, to Comirnaty, resigned seven days later. That's August 23rd. Well, fast forward to September 17th. We were ready. We had six people from our circles presenting at the US FDA. Six scientists, including Dr. Rose, including Paul Alexander, including um, uh, David Wiseman. We had an all-star team of people there, and we presented to the FDA September when the Pfizer came up for boosters. And you know what came out of that? Analyses showing death with the vaccine is greater than death just taking your chances with the infection. Hospitalization with myocarditis is greater than being hospitalized with uh, the respiratory infection. The vaccines aren't safe across the board. And you know what? The FDA didn't disagree. And you know what the panel voted for the booster, the advisory panel? 16 to 2 against the booster. So I'm telling you, there is a chance for dialogue. There is a chance for scientific interchange, and we have to make our voices heard. The vaccines not only have our great concerns regarding safety, and I think at this point in time can be declared generally unsafe, the vaccines don't work well enough in everyone. And you know what? When I did a TV show with Dr. Drew, many of you know Dr. Drew, the, the, he's an internist, but he's pretty expert in psychiatry. I, I said, you know, we've been on vaccine safety for three or four months this spring, and nobody seems to be batting an eye. He said, you know what he thought? He thought that America was prepared to have unsafe vaccines, that through all this misery and suffering of COVID-19, they were willing to take on the risks of mortality and morbidity with the vaccines without much alarm. I said, where's the outrage? He says, America was prepared for this, psychologically prepared. I think he's probably right. But the very first time I ever mentioned anything on national news that the vaccine may not work, oh my Lord. It was like a nuclear button had been pushed. 
And it wasn't me. It was Rob Mitchell on Newsmax. And Rob took the vaccine. He just happened to say that he thought maybe the vaccines wouldn't work. And we were commenting on the Olympics. They brought Rob Mitchell on his knee. Actually, the, my former journal, The Hill, made Rob Mitchell formally apologize by hinting that the vaccines may not work. Well, now the CDC has data. We finally have some data flowing. This recent publication just a few days ago shows the vaccine efficacy as calculated in community populations, showing that Moderna, which is very different than Pfizer. Moderna's 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. Pfizer's 30 micrograms of messenger RNA. Johnson & Johnson is adenoviral particles. Americans should know there's three separate products. You know, I've been having all these secret phone calls over the last few weeks. One of my head was with somebody very important at the Federal Reserve. And we started talking about vaccines. And I said, listen, you're a data guy. I see you on CNBC. I know you like data. You have three mystery products. I can tell you right now, it's September. We have a winner, we have a loser, and we have somebody in between. They can't be the same. Even you admit, as a person who deals with finances, you have three different products, three different mutual funds, three different bonds. They're not the same. They're not the same. This idea of take a shot, no. If you're going to mandate a shot, tell us which one's the best. Tell us, what, tell us how to do it safely. So this idea of any, any um, employer that's going to mandate a vaccine, you can better say which one. Let's see a careful review of safety of each one. We need to put the burden of proof on others, not on us. I have so many people, oh, Dr. McCullough, if you can just prove this to me. No, the burden of proof isn't on my shoulder. I didn't make these vaccines. They're not my... They're not my responsibility. They're somebody else's. Now, these data don't look too bad. 92% calculated uh, from the community for, against hospitalization. Pfizer, 77%. Johnson & Johnson, less. What's the caveat? They don't have data against Delta. The Delta variant's very different, and they did look good against the legacy variants. So these vaccines have failed in Delta. The Delta variant uh, came out of Mashtahara, India, when we got to about 25% uh, about vaccinated with the Sinovac vaccine. It's the most mutated of all the forms of the virus. Seven mutations in the spike protein, and an additional one called Delta Plus. The UK tells us there's 20 more sprinkled across the uh, spike protein and nucleocapsid, and now the CDC is telling us through their publications. I could do this whole talk just from the CDC website, by the way. Barnstable County, Massachusetts, this was mentioned previously, two-thirds in congregate settings who get sick with Delta are fully vaccinated. Americans ought to look at this curve over and over and over again and understand, in fact, it was about this time our CDC director got on there and said, you know what, the vaccines really can't stop transmission. The vaccines can't stop a vaccinated person from getting the infection. The vaccines can't stop a, a vaccinated person from giving the infection to someone else. Okay, this is what emerged this summer. Data from the Mayo Clinic, 25,000 individuals, very good, they actually know the strains. Moderna holding out at 76% protection, but now Pfizer at 42%. Israeli health minister has uh, Pfizer at 39% protection. Remember a vaccine that falls below 50% protection and can't last a year is not a viable product on the commercial market. Pfizer has failed as a commercial product, and I think that is really form fruist of why Pfizer's not approved for boosters. Now, it was suggested on the September 17th meeting that people over 65 and maybe those with other conditions would take a booster based on dead reckoning. They only had 12 patients over 65 who had taken boosters. Well, Israel's got a couple million people taking boosters, no signal that it's having any impact in the Israeli uh, Delta outbreak. The Israeli Delta outbreak is bigger than their pre-vaccination era outbreak. And they use exclusively Pfizer. Here are the data. You can see here, 86% of the COVID-19 cases in Israel are fully vaccinated. You don't need to be an epidemiologist to understand the vaccines have completely failed with respect to Pfizer and its use in Israel. The CDC started telling us through May that the vaccines were failing. This report came out over 10,000 full, break, full break, uh, vaccine breakthrough failures in the community. They had 10% were hospitalized, 2% died. That didn't look good. After this report, the CDC said, we give up. We are not going to report vaccine failures. We want to see cycle thresholds that are below 28. Uh, we have, they put on their website that if you took a vaccine, don't get any more testing. But if you're unvaccinated, that you should get more testing. They started to make tables. The CDC started to do 
asymmetric reporting to start to craft a narrative that this was going to be a failure of the unvaccinated, a crisis of the unvaccinated. But the CDC data continued to come in, showing us just the opposite. July 26, they had 6,507 uh, cases. And as you can see here, that we have um, uh, about 19% that were hospitalized. And sadly, um, we had 19% um, uh, who died. So we had a situation where, wait a minute, full vaccine breakthroughs, and they have a stringent definition. You must be vaccinated, fully vaccinated, wait two weeks, have, you know, this is a strict, this isn't the universe of cases, but these are solid vaccine breakthrough cases. Now we go to August 23rd, holy smokes, we have 11,050 full vaccine failure cases that the CDC is telling America about on their website, sadly, um, 87% of the deaths are over age 65, 70% of the hospitalizations are over 75. This is failure of the vaccine program in the group that we really wanted to protect. And nobody has been out front with the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, White House Task Force, telling Americans, seniors, that the vaccines are failing. What are we hearing about? The narrative we're hearing is vaccinate children. What about the seniors? Where is the public health prioritization of what's going on in America? It is astounding the ineptitude, the willful misconduct of the people running our public health agencies. It's astounding. Look at these data. Really? We're going to focus on California children when we have this going on? I mean, this is unbelievable. I hope this is being recorded. You know what? Record it. Record it. I want it. They're going to come after me. I want it. Bring it on. Now listen, on one sad day this summer, I want to say 20 media people and different officials in the United States had an identical talking point that 99% of people in the hospital were unvaccinated. On the same day, there was actually a collage. They actually showed everybody, including Ron DeSantis, disappointingly said it. Okay, really, really, how do the hospitals know who's vaccinated? How do they know? Do they check their vaccine cards? Are they checking first dose? Are they checking second dose? How do they really know? The answer is they don't know because the CDC has told them they don't have any mechanism to know. They don't have a mechanism to know. It is a basically by dead reckoning. Now we have two papers, one from the CDC, Havers, from the COVIDnet network, and then we have one from Philmar from the VA with large-scale data through June. Answer, 23% of Americans hospitalized with COVID-19 have been vaccinated. This 99% was, again, a propagandized false talking point that was put out by those in position of authority. False talking point. The data are not there for this 99, it's never been 99%. And as Delta, this was as Delta was shading in, as Delta continues to shade in, this number is gonna go up. This graph shows us that our Delta curve now is on the way down, it's true, it continues to go down, but it was about two thirds of our pre-vaccination peak. We knew from analyses by Brown and colleagues from Waterloo, Canada, that the absolute risk reductions from the vaccines were less than 1% from clinical trials. When, we, when the absolute risk reductions are less than 1%, it is impossible for a therapy to influence a population level number like an epidemic curve. Impossible, and what Brown predicted was correct. The vaccines have had zero impact on the epidemic curve. These vaccines were not gonna be a solution to, to flattening these curves. Now, if you look down below, look at red. Mortality's been kept low. Now, mortality is really a function of treatment. And it's one time I was on Laura Ingram, she goes, Dr. McCullough, isn't this a more deadly virus? I said, what determines whether that's deadly or not is whether or not someone got treatment. We have data showing that their treatments markedly reduce mortality. So it's not the virus that dictates mortality, it's how we respond to it. And fortunately, the early treatment networks, you just heard a state-of-the-art lecture from Dr. Rob, that we, there's a lot of things now that are done to take an edge off the intensity uh, and severity and duration of symptoms. That translates to reductions in hospitalizations and death. But by pushing mass vaccination, governments have created evolutionary pressures on SARS-CoV-2, and people warned us about this. Geert van der Bosch, Michael Yaden, um, uh, Sukhip Bakhtari, uh, uh, Dr. Luke Montier, they warned us about this. Don't do this. Don't vaccinate into a pandemic because we have a high prevalence of virus. It's like, it's like having a bunch of staph infections on your ward and putting everybody on a narrow spectrum antibiotic. Don't you think you're going to get resistant staph? 
I mean, they warned us on this. They said the virus is going to figure out these vaccines and the virus will find a way. We've always had a diversity of viral strains uh, in COVID-19, by the way. Delta has always been there. So has Alpha, Beta. They've always been there. So we have diversity, just like we have diversity in the room here. Everyone looks a little different. The ge ge genetic diversity is what we're supposed to have. What Neeson and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic showed us, as soon as we started vaccinating, we got to 25% vaccination, the diversity started to drop. That the number of different strains that the CDC was categorizing every two weeks started to plummet because we were starting to fool with Mother Nature, and we shouldn't do that. If we start to introduce a non-lethal, non-sterilizing evolutionary pressure. It makes perfect sense that the virus will figure out how to thrive in the vaccinated. And that's what Venkata Krishnan told us. They said, listen, this spike protein is mutating. It's mutating. The antibody is the big dark structure there. The antibody is looking for a little binding site. And there's a narrow library of antibodies. There may be just a few dozen of antibodies with Pfizer and, and Moderna and J&J. You know, the natural, the natural immune system is just has a, a monstrous library of antibodies, not high titers, but against the spike protein, the nucleocapsid, the envelope protein, polymerase. And we have full T cell capabilities. There's almost nothing like that with the vaccines. The vaccines are very narrow and very limited forms of immunity, but in very high titer concentrations. And look at that. Doesn't matter how high the titers are with Pfizer or Moderna. Look at that uh, conformational change. Antibodies can't touch it. So the Delta variant is exactly that. It has achieved antigenic escape. Look what the CDC tells us. In orange, it's all Delta now. It's all Delta. We have 99% Delta. That is very unnatural. We should have six to 12 different strains. We have fooled with Mother Nature because we've gotten more than 25% of the U.S. population vaccinated. Even worse, we're at 60% vaccinated. So now Delta is here to stay until the vaccines change. Because why would it change? Why would another strain even get in there? Look how good Delta is thriving in the vaccinated and unvaccinated. This recent paper that just came out shows from UC Davis in the vaccinated and unvaccinated, the viral loads are high and the same in both groups. It's clear that the vaccines do nothing to help reduce carriage of the virus. The vaccines do nothing. A vaccinated person who walks into this hotel is equally as a threat of someone who's unvaccinated and not recovered. I checked in at the front desk, so did you. There's a sign there that says, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. But if you're unvaccinated, you do. Well, we should show them these data. Look at those, those dots are, I mean, come on. This is, it's incontrovertible. The vaccines do not stop the virus from setting up camp in the nose and mouths of those who are vaccinated. So we must need a pivot to early therapy for COVID-19. Dr. Rob just gave you a state-of-the-art lecture. And I think we should be very proud of people like him and people like you in the crowds. Within 18 months, we've dropped everything in our careers and we have formulated a very solid approach to a potentially lethal, disastrous problem. When we started with this, the CDC sketched out 1.7 to 2.1 million American deaths. And if it wasn't for your efforts, and there's about 500 doctors right now trying to take care of the whole country, and you know it because your phone is blowing up every day, we, have, we, we cut those deaths off right at about 700,000. We cut them in half. We cut them in half with 500 heroes in America and a million doctors sitting on the sidelines and half a million nurse practitioners sitting on the sidelines and 500 heroes stepped in because we went on pillar number two. Early home treatment is the only thing that makes sense. You know, we're just wearing masks and contagion control. We did the best we could. We've done the best we could in the hospital. The hospital's a pretty bleak place. And I can tell you, we've already covered vaccination. Early home treatment focuses on those who are sick. The bottom line is that's what it should have always been, is just managing those who are sick. And vaccinated or not, the acute COVID-19 patients, we should demand early treatment. Okay, And under no circumstances should any one of us, and I will never do it, is I will never discriminate according to whether or not someone took a vaccine. Never. I will never allow anybody to spew vitriol out of their mouth because someone unvaccinated is in the hospital. Because that person took a smart risk 
I've already showed you the data and Kostoff agrees. That person was avoiding death with the vaccine and if they get hospitalized with COVID-19, that's fine. You know, we get drunk drivers who get hospitalized, we take care of them. We have um, patients with diabetes, people obese and have all kinds of problems, people alcoholics, we take care of them. So someone made an intelligent choice and somehow there's a pejorative statement regarding they're unvaccinated in the hospital, shame on them. Shame on them. Doctors in my institution can't look me in the eye. They cannot look me in the eye because they are so ashamed of what they've done through the course of this pandemic. And the bottom line is we give a very clear, confident, and joyous message that we can treat this illness. And in fact, what we do in treating this illness with our multidimensional approach has the largest public health impact on reducing mortality and morbidity because we're treating the people who are at risk. Everything lower down on the slide has lesser risk because people don't have the disease. Can you imagine we're going to lock down two people who don't have the disease? How can that possibly do anything? How about two people wearing masks and they don't have it, right? It, it can't, I mean, anybody would understand this. We have to focus on people who have the problem. So these papers, and they've been referred to, these are probably the most important papers I've ever published in my career. I'm coming up on 700 papers in the peer-reviewed literature, but to actually get these over the finish line as the medical literature had become corrupt. The New England Journal of Medicine is corrupt. Lancet, JAMA, they're all corrupt. How this happened, is going to be a story in medicine and to have the strength to get this over the finish line the first paper was with largely u.s academic and italian colleagues coracle network we put together the first concepts of how we would use drugs in sequence the second paper i recruited a lot of you in the audience to help out i needed firepower the senior author is vladimir zelenko one of the originators i wanted to give credit to every single person who originated in their practice, they innovated, they tried to help patients, they used their clinical judgment, they based their um, approach on signals of benefit and acceptable safety, they put drugs in the combination, they used their precautionary principles that this is a potentially fatal disease. We cannot fold our arms and wait for large randomized trials five years later and let people die. No. We cannot wait another five years for the guidelines that are going to depend on the randomized trials. Right? So I know, so, oh, we got to wait for randomized trials. Really? How many people are going to die? This, we needed a trauma surgeon running this program. We needed a bunch of surgeons who just knew how to take care of business instead of people telling us we need to wait for large randomized trials. I love large randomized trials. Believe me, I love them. I love to do it. I love New England Journal of Medicine. I was just in New England Journal of Medicine on a large randomized trial. I know how to do it. This is not the time for large randomized trials. This is the time for action. And this is diagram has been shown to many of you, but in brief, we don't think everybody needs treatment. People under age 50, mild symptoms, can nutraceutical bundle and get through the illness. But if they're presenting with severe symptoms or those down the middle, age over 50, medical problems, more than a 1% risk of hospitalization and death, in my view, is enough to do treatment. More than 1%. That's too high. And we use drugs in sequence, as you've shown here. I'm not going to go through all of them since they've been carefully reviewed. But I can tell you, on this slide, there are over a thousand supportive studies. A thousand. People say, when I testified in the U.S. Senate, uh, the minority witness said, you know, you just don't have enough evidence. You don't have enough evidence. Well, that's a game. That's a game we play in our meetings where someone tries to propose a new approach and then, then the naysayers say, oh, you don't have enough evidence. That's an academic game. That's not appropriate to play a game with American lives. This isn't about, I didn't have enough evidence. I had, with the American Journal of Medicine paper, I had six letters to the editor, and they came in from Duke, they came in from Manesh, they came in from McGill, from Brazil, from Europe, and the letters basically said, Dr. McCullough, you can't treat patients with COVID-19 like this. My answer is, yeah, I can, and I am, and I will, and why don't you join me? Why don't you overcome your fear and get in the game and help people through this illness. I would absolutely destroy them. I destroyed them and they went away in shame. They're publicly shamed. You know what, they should be shamed. The idea is you're trying to help people compassionately. You're fulfilling your Hippocratic oath. And I remember I was on uh, Tucker Carlson. I told him, I said, listen, I, I have not let a single one of my high-risk patients get slaughtered by the virus. And any doctor who has, and there's been a million doctors who have, it's immoral, it's unethical, and from a clinical and civil perspective, it's illegal. 
it's illegal. And I think there was going to be a price to pay. It's going to be years in the future, but there's going to be a price to pay for all these patients who have died. And you look through the records and all of them, I will tell you, they were all inadequately treated, every single one of them. Why should we use drugs off-label? Because the FDA tells us we should use drugs off-label. We're supposed to do this because one reason is that there's no approved drug to treat this condition. We're supposed to do this. In cardiology, the estimates are, you know, we're well over 60% of drugs are off-label. In cardiology, it's estimated that only 6% of the time do we have guidelines that tell us exactly what to do. All day long, we use our clinical judgment. If, if there ever was a time for clinical judgment, it was the mass casualty situation of the COVID-19 epidemic. It really separated the men from the boys, the women from the girls. It really did. And I have absolutely uh, a supreme confidence that what you have done to help your patients was the right thing. And if you use different drug combinations, I even, I talked to one doctor one day, he goes, well, you can't treat patients. I said, well, what do you tell them? He goes, well, I tell them there's no treatment. I said, do you give them a call the next day to see how they're doing? He goes, no. And the term I used is I said, you know, we're in a crisis of compassion. I bet if we just had a phone call system to call people each day to see how they do, that would reduce mortality. You know why? Because these seniors go home. They're in their houses or apartments. They know their families can't go by. They know they have a potentially you know, fatal illness. And they have, their doctors have basically abandoned them. They have nobody to call until that final moment of panic then they call, then the virus spreads, then they go in the hospital, and many don't make it out. This is wrong. So this guide, this guide is the, probably the most important guide ever produced by a society for in the history of medicine. This has been downloaded and utilized and passed around millions and millions of times. And it took Jane Orient and Lee Valite and others to put this together, and it's used over and over again because of the complete and total abject failure of our public health response. We filled a gap. People say, well, the CDC and, and, and WHO, and they, they don't recommend it. I said, listen, until they do, this is the standard. This is the standard. They, they can go forever before they recommend treatment. We are filling a gap, and we are entitled to do that. We treat the viral infection. We handle the pandemic crisis. This is so important. This is the only way to manage it. It is a potentially lethal problem. We'll never vaccinate our way out of it. It works. Erica Maldi and the treatment domiciliary group in Italy have shown it. They have gotten to zero hospitalizations in major citizen, uh, cities in Italy. They use a hydroxychloroquine-based program. They got out of their fog, and they are treating COVID-19. It works. In Italy, their delta curve is less than a quarter of their pre-vaccination era curve because they are using it. You've all been to Italy. It's pretty reasonable. Japan is frontlining ivermectin. Mexico City crushed their curves with ivermectin-based program. So did Peru. It keeps going and going. India, some of you are from India. India crushed their curve. They don't crush your curve with a vaccine. You crush their curve with early treatment. It works. Two good studies, Brian Proctor, Vladimir Zlenko, same results, about an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death with multi-drug programs. And these, these, are, these are legacy programs. We even have better drugs now. We can use in combination. Somebody asked me, Dr. McCullough, what do you think about the Merck drug? I said, bring it on. We'll just bring it right into our program. Maybe it can work. Maybe it's as good as ivermectin. I don't know. It probably looks like favipiravir. Favipiravir has been in our program anyway because we can use favipiravir in Russia and India and other countries. It's kind of like favipiravir. But it's not a single pill is suddenly going to save the world. That's what the news cycle looked like. Oh, Big Pharma is going to save us. No, this is what's been saving America all along. Paul Alexander published anything in the nursing home compared to nothing works. Even the most modest programs to have our senior citizens in nursing homes get COVID-19 and not get a milligram of treatment is malpractice. That is malpractice. Something for the seniors. Vaccinating people who have had COVID-19 that have natural immunity is, at this point in time, 
It's out of bounds. And this is an important paper by Jennifer Block, who's shown 20 studies support natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable, far superior, far superior to vaccine immunity. There are now three studies that I've summarized, six total, showing that if we vaccinate people who are COVID recovered, we harm them considerably. We harm them considerably. Um, Spectrum Health System up in Michigan, Grand Rapids, just announced those naturally immune, Mike Sharkey, who's, uh, Sharkey, who's the Senate Majority Leader, gave him my natural immunity wristband. Craig Wax has already shown the nat nat national, uh, natural immunity uh, t-shirts, which I'm gonna proudly wear running. The bottom line is, naturally immune, leave them alone. And, and if we have a break in this vaccine cabal, it's gonna be the naturally immune as the vaccinated continue to get sick with COVID-19. The only backstop is natural immunity, okay? And so we need to embrace it. And your grandma, in the olden days, these chickenpox parties, not a bad idea, I went to one. You know, I got chickenpox as a kid. Did I take the vaccine? No, because it's one and done. Am I taking the COVID vaccine? vaccine? No, because I had COVID. It's one and done. We have to get back to basics because freedom is at risk. Your freedom is basically this idea that you can win your freedom back. And there's been some uh, brutal commentary on CNN saying, listen, you just, you, you're not gonna get your freedoms back unless you take the vaccine. Since when? Since when are we gonna lever freedom based on an ineffective and unsafe vaccine? My new friend, Eric Clapton, who came to my house, great guy. Um, this is his idea, that we have three circles, medical freedom, social freedom, and economic freedom. As soon as we break medical freedom, that we no longer have a choice to decide what goes in our bodies, it will be an instantaneous break in social freedom. And when we break our social freedom, now we have an immediate link to our economic freedom, and the whole thing crumbles. But this is a real slippery slope right now. There's probably no critical six months that we're gonna see in American history than coming up right now. People are all over the world um, rioting. They're rioting for freedom to get medicines. Now, he can't spell ivermectin, but he knows it's important, okay? <laughs> and you gotta give them credit. They don't have it there. They're starving them of ivermectin, but this is in the UK, and they know something is wrong. They know people, and do you know what? It's because of our efforts, the world, the, the world knows that this is a treatable problem. Our agencies have been fronting everybody in the world that this is not a treatable problem, not a treatable problem. Guess what? These people know because of our efforts. This woman knows that ivermectin works in the hospital and she's suing the hospital for her husband to get ivermectin. There's been case after case after case of inappropriate nihilistic care in the hospital. Families go to court, they get court orders, and they force the hospital administrators, the chief of staff, and the ICU doctors to shamefully start treating patients appropriately, including full-dose anticoagulation, which they would do for the next patient with a pulmonary embolism, including giving ivermectin, which they would do for the next person who had scabies. But suddenly, if you're COVID-19, you actually get harmed. You know, blame the victim. And this started from the very beginning. Remember the very first people who got COVID-19? The commentary was, well, they're super spreaders. They did something. They didn't wear their masks. This has been a game. It's a big game, and it's a game that's, that's costing lives. It's hurting people. The public and private outrage over ineffective, unsafe vaccines cannot be loud enough. In every conversation, if they don't work and they're not safe, I'm sorry, they don't. Call a spade a spade. We don't have to sugarcoat it. Now, I have given a consolation private. I go on public TV and say, listen, people in my family took the vaccine. They did it patriotically. They didn't know. They're trying to keep their jobs. And a lot of people weren't harmed by it. That's terrific. What my clinical impression is, if you took one or two shots and you're fine now six months later, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Now, my experience is others disagree that those who are vaccinated, I think they're easier to treat. The CDC data doesn't support that. My clinical experience is as a consolation prize, it may be less severe as a consolation prize. But that consolation prize is absolutely not justification at all to have another person vaccinated in our country. We are having censorship of scientific discourse like we cannot believe. One of the modern American her uh, heroes is Ron Johnson. Okay, because of the fact that he recognized that you know the reason why Ron Johnson's interested in this? This is a very interesting story. Ron Johnson's daughter had congenital heart disease. 
and she had to undergo two surgeries. And my wife and I were in his chambers, and he told us the story. He said, listen, these doctors had to make edge decisions. They had to make decisions to save his daughter's life. They didn't wait for randomized trials. They didn't wait for uh, guidelines. They didn't wait for the CDC or the FDA to tell them what to do. They made some damn decisions as surgeons, and they saved her life. Now, she's, an, she's like an ICU nurse today. He knows that doctors should be doctors. He respects that. He put together the Right to Life, uh, Right to Try program. And I tell you what, we need, we need 102 more of him. And we need the whole house like him. We need people to recognize doctors need to be doctors because this is crushing the lifeblood of medical science right now. And if we don't, I am so activated. I'm down to about four hours of sleep and I am so activated because I know really this is a turn in history. This is historic what's going on. This type of thing, look at this type of letter I got from uh, this one, suspension or revocation of my license. Well, you know what? I am not giving information today. I'm not giving misinformation today. I'm giving you the data. And as a doctor, you're going to decide the data. This looks like a kangaroo court if I've ever seen one. Who's going to decide, really? You know, what I, you know what I think? I just recertified for the fourth time in medicine. I'll tell you what, what I tell them is, Bring it on. I want to talk to him about this. I want to talk to him about it. Okay? This hunting of American doctors is, is going to stop, and we're going to put a stop to it. But we're only going to put a stop to it, not by ducking, not by bobbing and weaving, not by hiding in the shadows. It's by assuming the authority that we have. This is very important. We have authority as physicians, as the most highly educated, trained, and vetted people in American society. We have authority, and we have the authority to go public and give our analyses and presentation of the data. We have the authority to do that, and I will not stop. I tell you, I've probably I've had uh, close to 500 media uh, presentations, maybe a thousand, and I don't care because people are asking my opinion. I don't ask to go on these shows. I don't get. I don't ask like, can I go to you know be on somebody's TV show? They're asking my opinion, and I have given it. Okay, I have given it. And I have the right to give it, and you have the right to give it, and we have the right to our opinions. And it cannot be stopped. It's really important. And there's a lot of, he there's a lot of heroes involved. The heroes are not just the doctors. The heroes are the media people. The the, I've met a lot of media people right now who are taking risks. They're not doctors, but they know something is wrong. They know this is a treatable illness. They know the vaccine program's going bad, and they know that we should take some action. When I was on with Tucker Carlson, he started getting pretty animated, and he, you know, about the middle of it, he started. He, I started telling him, "Listen, I said, Tucker, I said it's pretty obvious that there has been a suppression of treatment to promote fear, suffering, loneliness, isolation, hospitalization, and death in order to promote the vaccine." And he started gesticulating, and he finally just looked at the camera. He goes, he goes, if you don't know who this doctor is, you need to look him up because he has authority. And I said, you know what? For the first time I heard that, I said, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it. We do have the authority. If we will not take the authority, if we will not be bold, who will? I can tell you, uh, people say, well, Dr. McCullough, what's the biggest thing you've done in the media? I'll say it's this right here, Daystar. Daystar, the Christian network, has reached my words alone have reached, and they've brought on a lot of our heroes on Daystar, Marcus and Jody Lamb, have reached 1.7 billion people, billion with a B. When I go on Laura Ingram, that's 2 million. Laura Ingram's 2 million. Joe Rogan's maybe 10 million. 1.7 billion people. The message is out there. They know. I was recently on with Ben Marble. Ben Marble is a modern American hero. He founded MyFreeDoctor.com, free service, trying to help people get medications to get through COVID-19. Each and every one of you, get out there and get out front. You have to do it. You have to do it. We, can't, we have 500 doctors taking care of the country. We need 500 doctors on TV. This is getting serious. This is getting serious. We are being hunted. On July 28th, my former health system 
who, who effectively stopped my, terminated my contract after perfect service, a perfect grant track record, perfect practice statistics, perfect program administration, and I had had higher positions in other health systems, in the end of January did not renew my contract and violated all due process and gave no explanation for it. At the end of January, the only thing I had done is treated COVID-19 patients and lead some efforts in early treatment. I made not a single statement about the vaccines. Now, five days after a very public court case in Central Texas, uh, the Carroll case, where uh, a family took Baylor Scott and White to court for poor care in the ICU, and Baylor prevailed in that case, and the patient was dead within two days. Uh, four days after that case, uh, uh, and the same day Baylor announced its uh, ma uh, vaccine ma mandate, they put a lawsuit against me saying that I violated terms of my separation agreement, that, that I was associating with them in the media, okay? Now, by doing this, Baylor is associating with me in the media. Obviously, if you Google Baylor and Dr. McCullough, all the top hits are the lawsuit, but my wife and I are the biggest donors, of the physicians to the foundation. You know, I was a student at Baylor when I was at Southwestern in 1986 before any of those people were even there. Um, there is an endowed scholarship at Baylor University in my name. Uh, I'm the most published person at Baylor University Medical Center since John Fortran in GI. And these profiles, I have 800,000 profiles on the internet. If you search me, I have 16 million hits. This idea that they can do this, and, and what's this? This is September 16th, and, and who's this woman, Alicia? The, the, the temporary restraining order, which says I'm restrained to my contract, which I've always have been, that's not new news. This has been somebody is behind the scenes provoking something. And this is provoked not to necessarily injure me. I think this is a message to the media. This is a message to the media that this guy is damaged. This guy's tainted. Don't have him come on the news. Somebody, somebody is, is funding this writer because there's no news from the courts. There's no, there's no judgment, there's no hearing, there hasn't been any discovery. This is just what we call basically uh, slander or defamation. So Alicia gets to join a broad class of future defendants in my defamation case. If we don't act now, what people say is we are gonna be like Australia. Australia has very little COVID. On most days, they have, more COVID, they have more vaccine deaths than COVID deaths. There's something wrong going on in Australia big time. And South Africa is next in line. Europe is next in line. It's a very disturbing place right now. We get these distress calls. Probably half my emails from Australia. I've been there a bunch of times. It's a wonderful place. Melbourne's like San Diego. Have absolutely no problems with it. It's very American-like. But something is going on in Australia, and they're at the point where they are at a breaking point. They have restricted their freedoms. It can't be about COVID at this stage. What's going on about in Australia is not about COVID. It's about some type of mental uh, contagion. It's about some type of psychosis, some type of neurosis, some type of totalitarian takeover that's occurred all over the world. Something very dark is going on. And a lot of it is in this book, COVID-19, The Global Predators, We Are the Prey. It was previously highlighted here. Peter Bregan, Ginger Bregan. I was honored to write one of the uh, introductions on this. What's going on in the world actually is not really about COVID. COVID is a platform, an event that's been planned, it's been organized, the vaccines were planned and organized in some way to effect some type of very, very large change occurring worldwide. But whatever's going on, the principles are lockstep. And what I mean by lockstep is that everybody is in lockstep. Meaning there's some guy on his knees in the Philippines, if he doesn't take the vaccine, he's not gonna get his government check, and some kid is gonna be on their knees in LA because he can't go to school if he doesn't take the vaccine. This same type of, of, of coercion and reprisal is going on worldwide. I've done some things in Clubhouse where people, where people beam in from the, from the rainforests of South America, and it's in their minds. And I say, are you on Twitter? No. Do you know who Bill Gates is? No. Do you know what Gavi is? No. It's in the minds of people. This cannot be about money. It cannot. It cannot be about Pfizer. It's not. It can't be about, it can't be about Bill Gates. It's not. 
it's something very, very big going on in the world. In many ways, in a kind of a, a, a perverse way, it's a very exciting time to be alive. All of us are charged. I can feel the charge in the room. Something is going on. This book has a thousand references. This book gives you the material transfer agreement between Moderna and the Chinese for the spike protein before COVID-19 was a problem. Okay, this was planned. This book has the Johns Hopkins Symposium. They planned the pandemic in 2017. They planned how they were gonna get the scoreboard up on CNN of deaths, what have you. I mean, I'm telling you right now what's going on. We're, we feel like we're fighting a virus, and we are fighting a virus, and we are trying to help people, but we're on a small plane. There's something going on on a very big plane. So to finish and conclude, COVID-19 is a global disaster. Its pathophysiology is complex. It's not amenable to a single drug. No drug is necessary nor sufficient. Don't die on the hill for hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. There's a million different ways to treat this virus, and we have to be creative. The pre-hospital phase is the time for therapeutic opportunity. Hospitalization and late treatment is, forms an inadequate safety net, unacceptably high mortality. Patients going in the hospital get a step down in care, not a step up in care. We got to keep them home. Early ambulatory therapy, sequence multidrug therapy is supported by multiple sources of evidence. Very positive benefit to risk re, uh, re relationship, reduces the risk of hospitalization and death, most more safely temporizes our ability to close the pandemic. Lots of people help out. Naturopathic doctors have had a huge impact. They've stepped up way bigger than the allopathic doctors. There's opportunities for creativity all over. COVID-19 genetic vaccines have an unacceptable uh, safety profile, um, and they're not sufficiently effective to advocate in clinical practice. Censorship and reprisal are working to crush our freedoms of speech, scientific discourse, and medical progress, and now is the time. Now is our time. Thank you. Ha, 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 ha.